Today on the first episode of Dropping By with me, Michael Curzon, is ADM Collingwood on the ongoing row with Russia. Okay, well, Collingwood, thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, drop by. Oh, very welcome. You've, you've, uh, you've name-called already the series. So this, this for those listening, is a, a new series that we've got. You'll, you'll know that we do the Week in Review in which we talk for about 45 minutes to an hour on the subjects of the week. And then Sam also runs our current predicament, which looks deeper into the issues um, of the time. And a few other series as well, of course, Julian Yvonne's series and, and others. But this one is something I've been thinking of for a while, where um, especially with a, a small publication like us, so many issues happen so quickly in politics. And we'd like to comment on all of them, um, especially when we think they represent uh, interesting wider trends. But of course, we don't have that as a possibility, but I think an easy way to do it, rather than you know, bashing out 800 words on a subject every 10 minutes, is just to have a quick discussion with someone who we think is interesting and who seems to know a bit about the subject. And I think, Collingwood, we can certainly say that about you on um, what's been happening recently uh, in, in Moscow and uh, with Ukraine, and specifically on this one, with Liz Truss's visit to Moscow, which is what we're gonna talk about. And it was, it was packed full of, of gaffes and awkward moments and uh, all round sort of enjoyable reporting moments, wasn't it? It was indeed. Um, and I suppose the major one was that um, Liz Truss said that, uh, in a slip of the tongue, no doubt, um, that Britain would never recognize Russian sovereignty over two regions of the Russian Federation, not of Ukraine, not of any other country, but of the Russian uh, Federation itself, uh, Rostov and Voronezh. Yeah, it's it's not a short flight, is it, from 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 Britain to Russia? Was there no briefing on the way? Did she not look up on the on the you know the basics of the geographical facts of the situation? Um, and how can how can we be pouring out the rhetoric, especially that Liz Truss is pouring out on this and demanding Russia does this and that Russia does that, without having even just the basic knowledge of 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 some of the aspects of what is going on in the row? What, what do you think that tells us about sort of the wider stature of, of British politicians and, and Britain's worldview? Well, I don't think Liz Truss has much knowledge about Russian history or geography at all. This isn't the first time that she's made, uh, dropped a horrible clangor like this. Um, previously, she had confused the Baltic and the Black Seas. And before that, she had... Um, spoken about the Mongol and Tatar invasions of Russia uh, in the Middle Ages as if they were um, uh, two separate events, which of course they weren't. So I think Liz Truss has a tremendous amount of um, previous on this, shall we say. Yeah. But it is true, I think, that British politicians in general are tremendously ignorant of history quite widely, actually, yeah. um, but especially of Eastern European history. And it appears they're more interested in, to me anyway, it appears they're more interested in uh, grandstanding and, uh, you know, making a kind of tub-thumping point about, in an effort to present how powerful and strong they and Britain, I suppose, are as well, uh, than they are in getting to the root of problems and understanding them and understanding the history and the subtleties and doing some kind of real diplomacy. Yeah. Now, we talked before we started recording um, about Macron. Now, usually you'd think that, um, well, 
not necessarily think you'd see that we would be quite critical of uh, quite a bit of what Macron does. But you say that on on this subject, we saw actually quite a stark difference between uh, between Liz Truss and Macron in, in the approach that they took during their visits. I wondered if you'd talk briefly about that. Well, yes. It, it, look, I'm not a great fan of Macron. I think personality-wise, or certainly the image that he portrays uh, in his public appearances, uh, it's very easy to dislike Emmanuel Macron. Um, and certainly because of his, conf- you know, post-Brexit conflicts with Britain, it's easy to dislike. And as a social conservative like myself, rather than, uh, you know, a globalist uh, kind of internationalist like Macron, it, it's also easy to dislike him. But I've said for a long time, not just recently, but for several years now, that there's no leader in Europe, I think, who has a clearer-eyed vision of his nation's national interests mm. and the strategy uh you know, about getting France to those uh, interests. And he went to Russia and he spoke to uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and they actually spoke about potential solutions to, yeah. the, to, to, the issue, to the problem in Ukraine and Russia at the moment. Compare that with trust. Trust went to Russia, it seems to me anyway, simply to restate the British position. Yeah. So we had this preposterous kind of Potemkin a conference between Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and Liz Truss, the uh, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, where Liz Truss restated the British position. Lavrov restated the Russian agreement to that position. Uh, Liz Truss restated her position again, and then it ended. I mean, why on earth she went to Russia? I have no idea, because what exactly is the point of that? What was she offering? What solutions did did, uh, did she suggest? She was just saying... You know, you have to take your troops away from the border. And Lavrov said, well, they're within our border. They can go where we want, where they want, which is where the whole Rostov and Voronish problem came in, uh, yeah. why she dropped that clangor. But ultimately, it was, it, it was literally a restatement of the British position, yeah. which we've restated many times, diplomatically, one would have imagined, but also in public, and which the Russians have rejected many yeah. times, both diplomatically and, public, and in public. So... What on earth is the point of the whole thing? Like, did she go there just to grandstand both personally and on behalf of Britain to show that we're great, mighty Britain back in the big world again? I mean, is that what she did? Is, is that what uh, British diplomacy has been reduced to? Just making kind of grandiose, grandiloquent statements? Yeah. I don't know. I, I think you could, it, it's possible. I mean, we, we just recorded the week interview a moment ago with uh, Sam and Sam and Luke, and we, we touched on one aspect of this was uh, about this trust. You could even go worse. Uh, you could go deeper, rather, about the reason she was there. And I think there's an argument for suggesting it wasn't just for national grandstanding, but even for personal grandstanding. I mean, we know that the political situation at the minute within the Tory party is, is very sensitive, to say the least. Um, there, there are rumours of um, leadership campaigns um, and the image of Liz Truss wearing uh, the hat, which she will have known, the team she went out will have known, um, went out with would have known, and those who are agitating for her to become the next leader would have known, was very evocative of previous images that I think you've shared on social media of Margaret Thatcher, which of course is a, a dream within the Conservative Party. If you can be compared or called Margaret Thatcher Mark II, uh, you've got a pretty good chance of taking over if if a challenge is needed. Um, and, and as you say, these grandstandings of, of 
Um, we're Britain, we can solve the situation. We're the, the masters of the world in that sense, and we're going to turn it all around. Is It's almost actually embarrassing when you consider the position we're actually in, how likely what we say on the, uh, on the international stage is going to be listened to compared with the rhetoric that comes out. There's a very large gulf between the two. Well, there is indeed. And it makes me wonder whether the British government actually believe um, their own analysis of how dangerous Russia is, because surely if they believed that Russia was uh, um, an expansionary and uh, an expansionary power that was dangerous to the peace of Western Europe, which is obviously an issue that's important for us, you know, we need a stable Western Europe. But if Britain believed that Russia was truly a threat to that, why are they reducing the size of the army? You know, any any uh, efforts to counter Russia militarily would require a sizable um, land army. And at the moment, we're actually reducing it. We have, what, 224 Challenger tanks. Mm. Uh, we're reducing the size of the army to 72,000. And by the way, that's not 72,000 fighting men. No. You know, to put a, a, a brigade or a division in the field, you need a tremendous long tail of logistics and support. So at present, the United Kingdom could not put a single division in the field. Now, if we thought that Russia was genuinely a threat to peace and it was something that we genuinely needed to get involved in, why exactly are we doing that? Um, as for your second, uh, as for your earlier point um, about Britain's position in the world, well, we have hardly any ability whatsoever to influence Russia. We don't share a land board with them. We don't do a huge amount of trading with them. We're not reliant on Russian gas, and Russia therefore isn't reliant on our payments for its gas. Um, we have very little uh, diplomatic or military influence over Russia at all. And I would imagine that Russia understands that perfectly well. Yeah. Britain's injecting itself into a situation which, in which clearly its leading politicians know next to nothing, which it has next to no ability to influence whatsoever. Um, and it's an extremely dangerous and volatile part of the world, and it has been throughout history. Vast empires have grown extremely quickly and then contracted just as quickly to replace, be replaced by others you know, since the ninth century in that part of the world. And it seems to me that we're kind of bumbling around almost like, you know, somebody who's found himself in a forest and would like to make friends, unaware that there are, you know, lions and tigers and bears and that sort of thing. I mean, there are dangerous people in the world, which Britain does not have a tremendous ability to protect itself against. No, that's right. I think we we sort of have reduced this to to the sound bites, as you say. We've gone there offering or suggesting very little, uh, which which really does suggest we don't know the scale of of, of the potential uh, of the problem. So we've gone there with with little, as you say. Then we've not we've not really altered very much. Um, but we were talking earlier, and um, you sort of suggested what some some possibilities are now regarding Russia's next move. So I wondered if you'd go into those because it's it, it's not been touched on by the British media. We've we've been reading about Lavrov uh, apparently calling Liz Truss deaf, uh, which was of course a misreading of, <laughs> of what actually happened. Um, I found that, that point amusing because what he said actually was, um, it was like a conversation between a deaf and, uh, and a mute person. And it was never revealed who was the deaf and who was the mute. We'll, we'll have to go on guessing that. But 
So on the serious front, then on the point of the approaches that can be taken next, which is important because that, you know, that also determines our next moves, for example. What do you think some of the options are that Russia has presented for itself and how likely are these to be played out? Well, I guess there are um, four main options. The first option would be that either they of their own accord um, remove some of the men and material they've put closer to the Ukrainian border, either because they cannot maintain those forces there, and they can't maintain that indefinitely. I mean, they're in, as far as I understand, um, they're in, you know, field camps at the moment, and they won't be able to maintain them there indefinitely. The, you know, the tanks, the machinery, the, you know, anti-aircraft systems, they'll all need maintaining eventually. So Russia might withdraw them, think this is going nowhere, it's not achieving anything, or it has achieved a certain amount of disruption in Ukraine, uh, but we need to withdraw them. They could also withdraw them because they reach some sort of agreement with either the, the European Union or the US. Um, so that's one option. They could just simply withdraw them and nothing could happen. Yeah. I guess option two would be that they formally annex Donetsk and Lugansk, which are the two kind of breakaway regions of Ukraine and inverted commerce, which have uh, Russian-friendly kind of forces which uh, currently run them. Yeah. Um, the third option would be a um, to use, you know, Russia's vast superiority in, you know, ground fire and air attack, and perhaps some sort of limited um, land invasion to destroy the Ukrainian uh, military, which I believe I'm right in saying that most experts believe it could do fairly easily, uh, or easy in terms of warfare. I mean, warfare is never easy. Uh, but the third option would be to destroy uh, the Ukrainian military with a view to weakening Ukraine for a decade or more until it's able to rebuild that, because Ukraine has a lot of economic problems without having to rearm uh, and retrain and re-equip. Uh, and I guess the final option is um, a full military push into Ukraine. Um, I'm seriously uncertain that Russia could push all the way through Ukraine because certainly the Northwest is a much more difficult uh, in terms of topography and terrain. And it also has quite an anti-Russian population as far as I understand. Uh, but certainly a push into Ukraine as far as the Dnieper River and uh, Kiev uh, with a view to uh, forcing a change of government somehow and uh, forcing um, its preferred solution on Ukraine, on Ukraine. Mm. So those are the four options, I would say. Withdraw and do nothing for whatever reason, either because they can't maintain them or uh, because they actually get an agreement. Second, to formally annex the two breakaway regions, Donetsk and Lugansk, in the same way that they did Crimea. Um, thirdly, to use their military supremacy to destroy the Ukrainian army and uh, armed and martial capacity. Uh, and thirdly, to... Uh, you know, a full-scale invasion into Ukraine to uh, impose its preferred solution. Mm. And what do you think then is the, the the most likely? I remember you saying earlier the first is sort of something you wouldn't consider. Um, well, it's something that I would like. I mean, that 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 would be my preferred solution. It's just I see nothing as yet from the U.S. side which would um, which would uh, make. Moscow feel comfortable about withdrawing its uh, forces. Perhaps uh, Macron and the Normandy format talks, which ended today, might produce something that makes Russia feel comfortable with that. 
And I think it would be seen as a big loss if they just withdrew them of their own accord. It, you know, it would be seen ultimately as a defeat. Yeah. Um, I also think that's kind of presupposes that, um, you know, it was maybe a bluff right from the beginning. And I'm not sure that's potentially viable, given that Putin, whatever you think of him, doesn't seem foolish. Um, and the Russian general staff of their military, whatever you think of them, don't seem foolish. And so presupposes that, you know, they bluffed thinking they could win and they were just completely wrong. So that leaves the three, you know, the three other solutions. Um, formally annexing Donetsk and Lugansk, I believe I'm right in saying that there is a motion before the Russian parliament at the moment uh, to consider such an action. I think it was put forward by the, you know, the remaining communist parties. Um, I'm not sure why that was, but, um, that, you know, that is on the table. But ultimately what that does is it's essentially united Ukraine behind a Western-looking idea. It, it, you know, it's, it, it's basically removed the rest of Ukraine, which is the majority of Ukraine, out of the Russian sphere forever. So I think that would be a suboptimal, um, a suboptimal outcome for from the Russian side as well, um, which leaves the other two options, which is, um, as I say, ground fire and air attack, and you know perhaps a you know a land based thrust to destroy the Ukrainian military. But again, although that leaves Ukraine weak for the time being, I mean, for what purpose? You know, again, you would have pushed the entirety of Ukraine into the Western camp forever. So yeah. for me, uh, at present, I think the most likely outcome, unfortunately, is a full military push into Ukraine. Um, I know a lot of people disagree with that. I know a lot of people say that that isn't going to happen and they're unlikely to. I know Peter Hitchens said they would be mad to do such a thing. But just by, you know, as Sherlock Holmes said, once you've removed the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the answer. And I think... To me, it seems like the most likely route to the sort of outcome that Russia might want at the moment. But all of those options, except withdrawal, seem awful. So I think everybody really should hope that there's some kind of diplomatic solution where Russia can feel comfortable with the security of its Western borders. Yeah. Um, Ukraine can get some space to... Um, stabilize itself and get rid of the corruption, which is really a blight on its kind of nascent democracy and its its post-communist uh, economy. And the West can feel secure that there's very little Russian aggression, and the US can feel happy that they can concentrate on China. But unfortunately, at the moment, it seems that Western, certainly in the Western media and Western politicians, are far more interested in being right yeah. and standing up for their moral that kind of moralistic view of the world than they are to getting a stable, peaceful solution. Hmm. So whether that can happen, I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I, I think you've, you've actually taught, um, you've actually laid out a, a more thorough um, analysis of what's happening and sort of a, a layout in terms of what could happen next than I'm sure uh, Liz Truss uh, demonstrated she grasped yesterday, <laughs> which is worrying, but... As I'm not sure to say if that's a compliment or not, Michael. Well, no, I'm not sure it is. Actually. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of a low bar, isn't it? Very low bar. Not a very strong one anyway. But no, I am uh, I'm grateful for you uh, uh, sharing that with me and with us and for being the first guest on, on Dropping By. 
I think a lot of people find that very interesting and helpful as well, because as you say, the, the media is grandstanding around a lot of this, politicians are grandstanding around it, to actually hear what the options are, what could happen and how likely those scenarios are, is quite rare now, especially in such clear terms. So thank you for that. And um, we look forward to, to seeing what you read next, uh, write next on the subject rather, and what you might say next on it. And yes, thanks again. Cheers. Very kind, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.